Well, it's very good to be with you and to have spent time with you this morning. I'm thrilled to get the opportunity to bring God's Word to you now. Um, if you want to open in your Bibles to 1 Peter, Peter's first letter, to chapter 5 and verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let's pray, and then we'll read the text and get into it. Our Father in heaven, you are so faithful to us. You are so kind to us. And Lord, what a grace it is to us to get to sing together, for it to be a rehearsal of what we will do for endless ages together as the blood-bought people of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you love with a love that is undying and unwavering. But Father, as we live in this life and as we live in these bodies, there are hard times. Things can be difficult. Our bodies break down. Relationships become strained. Work is hard. We suffer loss and pain and death. But Lord, in it all, you are faithful in what you have waiting for us is a glorious eternity with you. So Lord, help us now as we study your word. Help me as I preach. Be with my voice. Father, even as I study the text on anxiety, I was reminded that I need to cast that on you and trust the power of your word. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're already there in 1 Peter chapter 5, let's begin reading God's word in verse 6. <clears throat> 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says this. This is God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. This is God's word for us, his people. I've titled this sermon, The Christian's Survival Guide to Hard Times. I think all of us know that life can be hard. As I just pray, we go through many difficulties, many trials and tribulations in this life in a world that's broken by sin. We are broken by sin I know I could testify and you could testify of probably many things that you or people you love have been through that are simply hard, difficult. And in this text, there are two exhortations and a reminder that I want to point you to as you walk through hard times. These are things I want us to keep close to our hearts and to our minds and to treasure as God's truth. So two exhortations and a reminder. Exhortation one Know God's care for you. Exhortation two, know that Satan hates you. And then the reminder, remember that your future is glorious. So 
Exhortation number one, know God's care for you. The first exhortation is that in hard times, you need to know that God cares for you deeply. So look with me at verse six. It says, humble yourselves, therefore. Okay, just you got to pause right there. This little word, therefore, indicates that we need to dip back into the previous verse because Peter is about to draw a conclusion based on something that he's just said. So verse five says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, it is a terrible thing, an awful thing to have the almighty, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God of the universe oppose you, to have him against you. And the Bible makes it plain, Old Testament and New Testament, on multiple occasions, that God is opposed to prideful and arrogant people. He says they're an abomination to him. On the other hand, though, verse 5 tells us that God gives grace to the humble. So if it is a terrible thing to have God oppose you, it is an immeasurably great thing to have God's disposition toward you be one of grace. Okay, so now back to verse 6. Peter draws a very clear conclusion in light of the reality of verse 5. Humble yourselves. If God gives grace to the humble, then you should pursue humility. That makes perfect logical sense, right? And then he gets more specific about what this humility ought to look like. Peter calls on his readers uh, and us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's an incredible statement. Peter is using language that speaks to God's power, to his strength. The language of the mighty hand of God is particularly associated with God's deliverance of his people out of slavery, out of bondage, out of oppression uh, from Egypt in the Exodus. So several passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, speaking of God bringing out the people from Egypt by his mighty hand. So Peter isn't talking about some vague sense of humility then. He is talking about entrusting yourself entirely to the God who saves and delivers, trusting that whatever situation he providentially places us in, that he is ultimately going to work it out for our deliverance, for our salvation. This means that as we humble ourselves before God, we know that he's not going to use his mighty hand to crush us, but he is going to use it for our salvation. The mighty hand of God freed his people and vindicated them from oppression, from bondage, from slavery, from suffering in the past. And so too, he is going to vindicate, vindicate these elect exiles in Asia Minor who, that received this letter and all those who entrust themselves to God to this day. That's why Peter follows this up with, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. It's vitally important that we don't view this as some kind of prosperity, name and acclaim it verse. When Peter speaks of the proper time, he isn't making a reference to everything being made better in this life because we humble ourselves before God. He is talking about the day of judgment. When those uh, who might be the lowest of the low now are raised up and exalted to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. Even as God's people suffer now, there's coming a day when their faith will be made sight. They will not be let down by the fact that they suffered dishonor and shame for the name of Jesus. Because when he comes to render his judgment on the living and the dead, 
he will not be ashamed of them. Those who are lowly and rejected in this world for the sake of Jesus will be co-heirs with King Jesus in the life to come. Our God is a God of reversals. He takes what is foolish to the world to shame the wise. So it's, it's humility now. It's exaltation later. A cross comes before the crown. But now I want you to see uh, that the way one humbles themselves before God is by casting their anxieties on God. So in verse seven, the means by which Peter is calling for us to humble ourselves is by casting our anxieties, anxieties on God. Did you catch that? You gotta follow the logic here. Notice that verse seven is still a part of the same sentence that began in verse six. This is a continuation of his thoughts on humility. So the word casting is telling us how we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. The implication is that when we are harboring anxiety and not casting them, our anxieties on God, we're acting pridefully. When we do that, we are acting as though we are self-sufficient, like we can manage all of the things that make us the most anxious in our own strength. Anxiety is a form of, of pride because when we are filled with anxiety, we become convinced that we must solve all our own problems in our own strength. And in that sense, the God we are trusting in is not the God of the Bible, but ourselves. Friends, to hang on to our anxieties instead of casting them onto God is to pridefully reject God's wise and fatherly care for us as his dearly loved and adopted children. However, when you cast your anxieties on God, you are acknowledging that he alone is capable of meeting your deepest longings, handling your greatest fears, and taking care of the things that you value the most. To throw your cares and concerns and anxieties upon God is to demonstrate humble faith that being under his mighty hand is the best place to be. And remember, Paul isn't writing to a people who are living a cushy lifestyle. He's writing to a church that would have been sorely afflicted by suffering, by distress, persecution, which surely would have induced anxiety in them. So an imperative to cast one's anxieties on God only makes sense if God is able to bring comfort to their anxious hearts and their needs in the face of these hard times that they're walking through. You want to tell someone who is cruel and indifferent towards you about what is worrying you, about what is on your heart. But it makes perfect sense to cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to think right now, really right now, think about the thing in your life that is causing you the most anxiety, the most worry, the most fear. What is that thing? Now, I want you to know that God cares infinitely more about whatever it is that you're thinking of than you, and that he is infinitely more capable and better equipped of bearing it than you are, than I am. God has infinitely broad shoulders and is able to carry even our heaviest burdens and at the same time, keep the earth spinning on its axis, keep the most distant galaxy intact. Tend to the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and the grass of the field. And all the while, he's caring about your children, 
your marriage, your aging parents, your health, your financial struggles, all the things that make you the most anxious. God cares about those things even more than you do. And as our good and gracious father, he is infinitely better equipped to know exactly what you need in any given circumstance, whether that be persecution for the sake of the gospel, or that's uh, infertility or chronic illness, waiting for lab results, the loss of a job, longing to be married, but not finding a spouse yet, having a wayward child or whatever else might be causing you to worry. We can leave all of it. Notice it says, cast all your anxieties on God. We can cast all of it and leave it in the wise and gracious disposal of our father who loves us and who didn't spare his own son for us, but graciously gave him up for us all. So then will he not with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, turn your anxieties over to the Lord. Affirm and confident trust that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do, calms the hearts of weak, feeble, and frail people like us. But too often we forget this and we get so wrapped up and anxiety for no reason at all. And then we try to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, struggling underneath its weight, unwilling to let the strong hand of God take it on. Uh, this might come as a shock to some of you, but I'm not a bodybuilder. Uh, maybe the jacket gives an illusion. If I take this off, there's nothing. No one has ever asked me for weight room tips. No one asked me what supplements I take. Uh, no one asked me what brand of whey protein that I consume. I'm what some people might call lanky. And that's okay with me. I, I accepted this a long time ago. I told some people at lunch today that when I was in eighth grade, I was about five foot 11 and I was wrestling and my weight class was 112. So I accepted this a long time ago. There was a time in my life where I worked very hard though to build muscle and to bulk up and I still just looked exactly like this. So back in my day, I was a basketball player and I had the opportunity my freshman year of college to go play at the, at the collegiate level. So I knew I needed to bulk up if I was gonna go and play with grown men. That's a big jump from high school to college. So that summer going to college, I set my mind on it that I was going to get stronger. I was eating a lot, I was taking supplements, drinking protein shakes, lifting all the time, all the things that one would do to, to put on weight to get stronger. And as I was doing all that, I remember one day, it was towards the end of the summer, I'd been putting in all of this work, I was going to the gym, and I knew that it was gonna be max out day. This is where you're trying to go as heavy as you possibly can, and we're gonna do bench press. You know, you're under the bar and you're, you're pressing up, just sheer strength. So I'm thinking, all right, here it is. All this hard work, all these hours in the gym, it's all about to show up right here, right now. I'm pumping myself up. So I get my weight on the bar. Won't tell you how much. I'm looking at it. To me, relative, it looks like a lot. I get fired up, get under the bar. My trainer helps me get it off the rack. I begin to bring the weight down to my chest. And then I realize there's no way this is coming back up. So there I am. I'm struggling underneath the crushing weight of this barbell fighting with all my might to push this thing up off of me, pushing, straining, grunting. And then I let out the words that nobody that's lifting weights wants to let out, which is help, you know? <laughs> so, but all of a sudden upon those words, help or spot, whatever it was I said, uh, I suddenly felt the weight almost levitate off of me without any help from me at all. And then placed safely back on the rack. 
my trainer, who's about 5'5", five, five, no kidding, but entirely made of muscle, had grabbed the bar. And remember, this is my attempt at the most weight I'm capable of doing. He grabbed it with, with one arm, one hand, just like this, and set it back on the rack. And it was at that precise moment that I was not nearly as strong as I thought I was. I was humbled in the presence of a guy who was able to lift more with one arm, something I couldn't even lift an inch with me applying every bit of strength I can muster. And all too often, we assume that we are strong enough to carry our own anxieties. But really, we are struggling underneath the weight of it, unable to move a thing. So brothers and sisters, cast those anxieties on the Lord. Trust him for his strength, his wisdom and grace, of which he has an unlimited to supply to wield, even in situations and things in your life which are most burdensome, including the things you're anxious about. Exhortation two, know that Satan hates you. So uh, he does not love you. He does not ever have your best interest at heart. He is a liar. So notice that as we move to verse eight, coming off the back of this exhortation to cast our anxieties on God, Peter does not just tell us to now sit back and twiddle our thumbs and do nothing and take it easy. Rather, he calls on us to be sober-minded and watchful because we have an adversary, the devil, who is like a ravenous lion looking for someone he can turn into dinner. It's important to note that Peter brings up this roaring lion that is Satan in the context of calling Christians to trust God in the midst of their suffering and anxiety. He wants them to know that Satan is often hunting among the hurting. He sees those suffering as prime prey. So with that in mind, Peter wants these Christians to know that they need to have sound judgment and a clear mind. That is, we need to be sober-minded. And he wants us to be vigilant, keeping watch, making sure we're not giving Satan an inch. So when I was coaching basketball later, after my playing days, when I was in seminary, I loved all those classic coachisms, you know, just things that coaches say. And, and one of my go-to phrases was, you have to stay ready, so you don't have to get ready. So regularly, I'd say that to guys who were sitting on the bench. I'd wanted them to make sure that they were locked in, that they were focused, that if they got called into the game, they'd be ready. Too often, guys would sit on the bench, they would lose concentration just sitting there, not being in the game. Then they would go into the game, they would totally not be ready, and then they would get embarrassed on the court because they weren't ready for what their opponents were bringing at them. Sometimes, in our Christian lives, we too sit back. We don't pay attention, and we leave ourselves open to attacks from the adversary. So we have to stay ready, stay engaged. We have to be diligent, especially when the times in our lives are hard. Do not miss the fact that Peter describes Satan as a deadly predator. The devil roars and stalks, and stalks to induce fear in the people of God. He wants to intimidate us so that we'll cave into his evil designs. Satan will come to you in moments of weakness and offer things to you that sound great. But remember, he hates you. Just look at the different descriptions here of God and Satan that we've already seen in these, in these verses. The, the difference is striking. You have a God who cares for you and a devil who devours. God protects, Satan causes distress. God soothes, Satan terrifies. Guys, Satan hates you. And remember, as he roars at you, that your adversary, the devil, is a defeated enemy. 
He has taken on a mortal wound when Jesus died on the cross to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So you might hear his terrifying roar, but know that he is an angry and defeated enemy and that you will not be devoured if you do that. In verse nine, we then get the battle plan for how we're gonna stand against our adversary. And thanks be to God, it doesn't involve acts of Herculean strength on our part or some sort of mystical powers. Here's how you make Satan retreat. Here's how you make the lion scurry away. Faith. We resist Satan by trusting in God. Jesus says in John 8, uh, verse 44, that Satan was a liar from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So do you see how you stand against a liar then? You fight lies with truth. Satan wants to warp the truth and put half-truths into our minds, but we douse the fires of temptation and lies with the water of God's promises, which are true and unchanging. When Satan uses his age-old tactic, you know, the one he used in the garden, when he said, did God really say, we retort back with, thus saith the Lord. Jesus modeled how we are to stand firm in our faith against Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. So in Matthew uh, chapter four, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And it's at that point that Satan comes to him to see if he can tempt him. Again, isn't it interesting that Satan would wait to do it until then? When Jesus would be hungry and tired and isolated. That's when Satan starts hurling his lies at him. That's when he's roaring Let me draw your attention to one aspect of the temptation narrative in Matthew 4, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read it to you. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, so here's what I want you to notice here. Look at what Satan is tempting Jesus with. He's saying, Jesus, look, why don't you just take all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you right now. I know that Psalm 2 says the Messiah will have an inheritance of nations. So why don't you let me give you all these kingdoms of the world? And you can do it without the suffering. All you have to do is worship me. Do you see that? Get the kingdom, avoid the suffering. Look, guys, Satan will tempt you according to real desires that you have in your heart, not with things that don't matter to you. He knows what Jesus has come to do, why he has come into the world. And so he puts the kingdoms of the world before him. He says, come on, Jesus, here are all these kingdoms right here. I know you're here to bring your kingdom to the earth. Just take these, don't suffer. All you gotta do is worship me. But Jesus is the true Adam who doesn't fall for the lies of Satan, but instead trusts the Lord, his God, and he fires back the true words of God to the liar, Satan. He fights the twisted promises of Satan with the infallible and trustworthy word of God. So we must follow the example of our Lord. We must see through the lies of Satan, knowing that he will always overpromise and underdeliver. Cling to the promises of God. John Piper says, 
that sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. Fight against sin and Satan by trusting, by faith, all that God promises to be for us in Jesus. That is far greater, infinitely greater than whatever sin and Satan are holding out to us. And then notice in this latter half of verse nine, that Peter tells his suffering audience that they're not alone in experiencing suffering, but that the brotherhood, which is other Christians around the world, are suffering too. He's telling these particular Christians that they're not being singled out in their suffering. But this is, this is par for the course for Christians. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, that we shouldn't be moved by afflictions because we were destined for this. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Living a life of faithfulness to Jesus will often accompany, uh, be accompanied with rejection for the sake of Christ. But even that is a reminder that we belong to Jesus. Satan hates you because he hates God and you belong to God by faith in Jesus. That's why he's coming against you. So when Satan comes against you and when he comes against the brotherhood, tell Satan to kick rocks and trust the promises of God. Now, despite all the hard times we may face in this life, despite the attacks of the adversary, our devil, we need to remember, we need a reminder of the glorious future that awaits us in Christ. This is the last thing, this is the reminder that our future is glorious in Christ. I want us to see in verses 10 and 11 that as a Christian, what lies ahead of you in the future for endless ages in Jesus Christ is glorious. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, and after you have suffered a little while. Okay, pause right there. That almost seems offensive after things we've talked about and in light of the whole message of 1 Peter. Maybe you've been dealing with chronic pain or rejection from family members for your faith in Jesus for years, for decades, and you're thinking, this suffering doesn't seem like a little while. And I don't think Peter, or I'm certainly not saying that we want to belittle your pain or your suffering that you faced. However, Peter wants to draw our attention to the fact that for the Christian, our present sufferings are just a blip on the radar compared to the endless ages of glory that lie ahead of us. Christians, your future is glorious. And let that future glory anchor your soul as you wait in the present. And keep following what Peter says, verse 10. After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Okay, you got to pause again there. To say that God is the God of all grace is an extraordinary statement. Grace is a favorite word for Peter in this letter. He uses it a lot. If you have any questions about grace, you should just ask Mike Chang because he taught a wonderful and edifying lesson on it in Sunday school. But I want to draw your attention to what Peter is saying when he calls God the God of all grace. He means that God is both the possessor and giver of all grace. This means, dear Christian, that God has every grace that you need to be sustained and to persevere until you reach the eternal glory that he has called you to in Christ. Now, what does that mean when Peter says that he's called us to his eternal glory in Christ? First, this language of called is used elsewhere in 1 Peter, particularly in chapter 2, verse 9, to speak of the Christian being called effectually by God out of darkness 
and into his marvelous light. So this language of, of calling suggests the effective work by which God brings believers into a saving relationship with himself. He called us and we came because he called us. I think it's clear that the calling language of verse 10 is about salvation because we are called to God's eternal glory. The only way we are going to be in glory is uh, with God is by salvation. But look at what a uh, little phrase, a familiar phrase from this morning pops up here. In Christ. We are called to eternal glory in Christ. So Ed did the heavy lifting on that, what that means this morning. But here's what I want to point out tonight as we see that little phrase pop up in our passage. Peter's emphasizing, he's underscoring that God's saving call that ends with us in glory uh, is effectual in and through Christ. If anyone reaches glory, it's because they are called in Christ. Now, the implication of that as it relates to your future being glorious is that this means that your salvation, your future glory with God forever is sure. This is not a question. It's a sure, a fire thing because we are in Christ. And there's yet more glory to take in here because we see that God himself, not some representative, but God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish his people. All of these things that God will do are getting at one idea. God will make sure that even in the face of all our hard times, all of our suffering and difficulty that we will endure to the end. God has pledged himself to us. He is promising that his people will be faithful until the last day, until we reach glory. So friends, as you languish in the suffering we have to face in this world, you must look to this glorious future that is yours in Christ, where all sin, pain, misery, Loneliness, anxiety, sadness will forever be banished. And what you will experience instead is endless ages of God showing you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, I don't know what most of you are walking through right now. I, I know some things. I don't claim to be a prophet. So I don't know what your life is going to look like in the next day or month or year or decade. But here's what I know without a shadow of a doubt. If you have been saved by God in Christ Jesus, if he loves you in his son, if your sins are washed by the blood, then God's ultimate will for your life is to lavishly pour out his grace on you forever. So dear friends, as you writhe in the agony of suffering now, be filled with thoughts of the day when your faith becomes sight when your body is resurrected, when every tear will be wiped away from your eye by the Lord himself, when you drink the water of life without payment. Dear friend, you may be afflicted now, but the day is coming when you will conquer with Jesus and reign with him in his eternal kingdom and your suffering in this world will not even register with you. So press on to glory. No God cares for you and fight against Satan who hates you. Brothers and sisters, we are one day closer to glory. Let's just close with Peter's words in verse 11 and let them stand on the road. To him, the one who has saved us, 
loved us, kept us, preserved us to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I know that in a room this size, there are so many different forms of, of suffering. I'm sure people have things flooding in their mind, even as I preach. So Lord, I pray that they would not hold on to those things, but that they would throw them on you, that they would eagerly want to, by faith, trust that you can carry the things that are burdensome to them. I pray, Lord, that this church would be a people who stands firm against Satan and fights sin and pursues holiness. And I pray, God, that week in and week out, they would be pointed to the future glory that awaits them in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.